So just by way of review, John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 give us insight into something that in the other three Gospels is covered in less than a chapter, just a part of a chapter. In fact, what we used this morning for the Lord's Supper from Matthew 26 is basically a summary of what these five chapters cover. In Matthew 26, Jesus gives the Lord's Supper to his disciples, serves it to them for the very first time. And then by the end of the chapter, they are, this is 26 still, by the end of chapter 26 in Matthew, they are in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no details of how they got there because that's the way God wanted it. I'm not slighting Matthew, but in Matthew's gospel, that's what God wanted communicated. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have details about Jesus' prayer. Now, in John, there are no details about Gethsemane. He basically walks in, steps into the garden, and next thing you know, he's getting arrested in John, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. But in Matthew, one minute they're in the upper room, next minute they're in Gethsemane. And Jesus prays, a lot of detail about the times of prayer there, three separate one-hour prayer times, and then Jesus is arrested. And still before the chapter has ended, he's appearing before the religious leaders. And uh, when chapter 27 begins, it's the next morning, and he's being taken before Pilate early the next morning. So I've, I've said all that to say that what is found in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is greatly condensed in the other three Gospels. So we have a treasure in John 17 that we don't have in the other Gospels as far as these details go. I remind you that John chapters 13 and 14, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. In John 15 and 16, Jesus and his disciples are walking to Gethsemane and Jesus is talking to them. And then in John 17... Jesus is praying for his disciples, including us, as he walks to Gethsemane. What a privilege it was for those disciples to hear Jesus pray for them. What a privilege it is for us to have a written, preserved account of Jesus praying for them And for us, what a privilege. And you kind of get the idea that the disciples do not believe, I'm not slamming them. Well, not, you know, not heavily, but you kind of get the idea that they don't appreciate what a privilege it was to hear Jesus pray because they get into Gethsemane and right away it's nap time. I probably would have done the same thing. You probably would have done the same thing. But how much would you give to get to hear Jesus pray? What a privilege. Why is it so wonderful? Well, for one thing, when you hear Jesus pray and you read him praying here, you get to know his mind and his heart. Have you ever been in prayer? I bet you have been in prayer 
thinking to yourself, I hope I'm doing it right. I mean, what do you say? If you pray for an hour for the same thing, which is very hard work, what do you say? Repetition is fine. I'm saying, you know, Lord, please save my friend Jim. God, please save my friend Jim. Oh, God, please save my friend Jim. That kind of repetition is absolutely fine. You say, Jesus said not to use repetition. He said don't use vain repetition. That means empty words. But when you're praying passionately for someone or something and you say the same phrase over and over again, that is not vain repetition. That is just, you know, what could be empty, if you're not careful, is trying to be flowery like you're going to impress God with your flowery speech. And sometimes it's easy to think, Lord, I've got to reword this for you because you're going to get bored if I just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Um, The fact is, and you've heard me say this many times, it was John Bunyan who said, in prayer, it is better to have heart without words than words without heart. So I've thought, and I'm sure you've thought, I hope I'm doing this right. How would Jesus pray? Well, you're getting a glimpse of how Jesus prayed right here by hearing his mind and his heart. Another reason that this is such a privilege is because you're getting to hear Jesus talk to the Father. This is amazing. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is talking to his Father. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the more sensitive, spiritually sensitive disciples weren't thinking, should we even be here? This is such sacred ground. These are such sacred words. He was speaking to the Father. Another reason why it was such a wonderful thing is that when we read John 17, we are learning to pray from the greatest prayer who ever lived. Abraham was a great prayer. We have his prayer, for example, for Sodom. And he got up early in the morning and prayed towards Sodom. And there are other instances of Abraham's prayer, but Abraham would happily have bowed at the feet of Jesus Christ and let him taught him, teach him how to pray. Jacob, God commended Jacob because he would not let go in prayer. In one of the prophets, it calls it his strength. He had strength with God because he would not let go. Jacob was a tenacious prayer. But Jacob would have happily bowed at the feet of Jesus Christ and let him teach him how to pray. Moses was a tremendous prayer, and we have many of his prayers in the books of the law and also In the book of Psalms, we have at least one, and I think probably two, Psalm 90 and 91, the prayers of Moses. He was a great intercessor for the people of Israel. When they sinned, he made a statement that the Bible doesn't even finish the statement. If you read it, it ends with a dash. Lord, if you can can save these people, please forgive them. Please have mercy. But if not, I mean, what was on his heart? 
Moses was a great prayer, but Moses would gladly, boy, Moses would have loved to have been on this walk to Gethsemane to hear the greatest prayer of all time. Show us how to pray. David, of course, was a great prayer. We talked about that this morning. That was the whole message this morning. And I guess no one, of no one, do we have more samples of his prayers in the scriptures than David. Nobody else as many as David's. And yet David would gladly have walked on this path just to hear the Son of God talk to the Father. Daniel. Daniel was known for his prayer life in his day. And he suffered and was tested and proven because of his prayer life. Daniel prayed and fasted to know a truth of Scripture for 21 days. And when the, mess, when the angel came with the answer, he said, man, it's a good thing you kept praying because I faced a, lot of, faced a lot of spiritual resistance and I would not have made it through if you had quit praying. By the way, I wonder how many of our prayers we lose the answer because of the opposition there is to the prayer delivery man. I'm not trying to be funny. The prayer delivery angel faces resistance and there's no prayer power behind him. And so he gives up and takes the answer back home. But Daniel would gladly have walked with Jesus on this path and said, oh, listen to the son of God pray. That's what we have before us. We have the prayer of the son of God. Last time we were together, we covered verses one through five. But before we did, I, I broke it down for you in an outline, verses one through five, he prayed, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. In verses six through 10, Jesus prayed, I have taught them. Verses 11 through 15, I am returning to you. Keep them. Verses 16 through 20, I'm returning to you. Keep them clean. Verses 21 through 23, I'm returning to you. Keep them one. Verses 24 through 26, I'm returning to you. Keep them in your love. Now, tonight, we're going to cover verses 6 through 10. I have taught them. And we're going to learn some specific lessons from what Jesus says. So while we learn about Jesus, we're all going to be also going to be learning about ourselves and what we what we ought, how we ought to see what we're doing. I almost said what we, what we ought to be doing, but you're doing what we're talking about tonight. But what we're going to talk about is how you ought to see what you're doing from the example of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that Jesus is telling the Father the details of his ministry. And... That might seem a little unusual because you think, well, the Father already knows. Why is Jesus telling the Father what he already knows? Well, can I remind you that all prayer is telling the Father what he already knows? The confession of your sin is telling the Father what he already knows. What's important is that you say it and that you deal with it with God. Whatever, positive, negative, that you work it out before the Lord. I remind you of after Jesus' resurrection, Luke 24, 
He's walking on the road to Emmaus. He's going after these disciples who have gotten discouraged and decided to go home. They were not of the 12 or the 11 at this point, but they were two of Jesus' disciples who were confused. And so Jesus sought them out. Isn't he awesome? Isn't he awesome? You ought to be glad that when you're confused, Jesus seeks you out. And you ought to pray for the people in your life that when they get confused, Jesus will seek them out. So Jesus seeks out these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said, the basic, I'm going I'm I'm to humanize it a little bit. I'm certainly not quoting. Jesus said, uh, hey, man, where are you going? No, we're, we're walking. We're not walking to something. We're walking away from. Where are you walking away from? Jerusalem. Why do you look so sad? Well, I mean, we're sad because of all the things that happened in Jerusalem over the weekend. And Jesus says something just stunning. He says, what things? Well, Jesus could tell the story better than anybody could. What things? He knew what they meant. He knew what they were talking about. Why did he say what things? Because Jesus wanted to hear them say it. He wanted them to talk about it. And you know, when you go to the Lord in prayer, we I'm afraid that we do way too much of our interacting with God on the basis of his omniscience. Well, God knows everything, so I don't have to tell him that. No, he says to you, what things? I want to hear you tell me. I want you to come into this. You know, we'll complain to everybody under the sun. We'll give our philosophy about why God did this, why God did that. But read David's prayers. David spelled it out. (laughs) David would say, oh, Lord, this guy, he's driving me nuts. I pray that his children will be fatherless. (laughs) That's not a good attitude to have. No, but if you're going to have it, take it to the Lord. If you've got something in your heart that's just, you say, that's messed up, but it's in there. Take it to the Lord. He says, what things? So Jesus states some obvious things to his father, things that his father already knows. But you got to talk about it with God. You got to talk about it with God. I hope this week, as you go through your this coming week, Of course, I hope that you'll take this morning's truth. Lord, please show me the way. I hope that becomes knee-jerk for you. Lord, please show me the way. Show me. I know you have a solution. Show me what it is. Show me the way. But then I also hope that you will strive to learn to talk things over with the Lord. Spell it out. Your darkest, deepest secrets are not secrets to God. He needs to hear you acknowledge. And so, anyway, Jesus states the obvious. So, here's what we're going to look at tonight for just a few minutes. We're going to learn some truths about the stewardship of God's truth. What, what, we're, what we, if you read this, you saw, maybe saw it, but what I'm going to point out to you now is this, that Jesus as a teacher, viewed himself 
as a steward of his father, Jesus. If there ever has been a teacher who ever lived who was not the steward of someone else, it was Jesus. But Jesus presents himself to the Father as a steward. Now, what is a steward? A steward is someone entrusted with the care of valuable possessions that belong to someone else. He's responsible for those valuable possessions. He's accountable, meaning he will report on what he did with those valuable possessions. He's expected to protect them, maintain them, and if it's possible, increase their value. That's what a steward does. Someone owns something and says, please take care of this. We got an insect problem over there. Wow, where'd you come from, dude? It's winter. Where'd he go? Is he gone? All right. Let me know if he comes back. I'll get him. I'll get him. Anyway. Um, but someone owns something valuable. And for whatever reason, they don't want to fool with it. And so they find somebody that they believe they can trust. And they say, take care of this for me. I want you to take this for the next five years. And when I come back, I expect it to be well-maintained, well-cared for. And if it's something that can be multiplied, I expect it to be multiplied. So that's what a steward does. As teachers, we are entrusted with God's truth and with human minds and human hearts. False teachers, even if they call themselves Christians, are very poor stewards of God's truth and of human minds and hearts. People who use teaching or preaching as a tool to pull people to themselves, they are irresponsible stewards of God's truth and of human minds and hearts. So there's five verses, and from each verse we're going to learn a truth about Jesus' stewardship as a teacher. Number one, Jesus considered himself a steward of each of his disciples. In other words, the Father, Father, you have entrusted these people to me. Look at verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. We would say that differently, most of us. We would look at these, this group of 11 and say, these are my converts. I won them. I discipled them. I led them. And here they are. D.L. Moody was walking down the street one day and a drunk walked up to him and said, Hey, Mr. Moody. He said, I'm so happy to meet you. I'm one of your converts. <laughs> Moody said, Yeah, you look like one of my converts. 
Jesus didn't say, these are my converts, I won them to Christ. There's nothing wrong with pointing out that you had the privilege to win someone to Christ. That's wonderful. But be careful that you understand that you are a steward. God trusted you with that person's heart and with the truth that you gave to them. So we are stewards of every person God allows us to influence for him. Do you look at your fellow church members that way? God has entrusted me to love them. He has entrusted me to encourage them. Do you look at every visitor that way? Do you look at your family members that way? First and foremost, I should have put that first on the list. Do you look at your family members that way? Do you look at your coworkers that way? Do you look at your neighbors that way? Well, you know, I tried to witness my neighbor one time and they, just, they wouldn't have any. Okay, but you are still a steward of the example of Christ before them. Your coworkers, I mentioned them already. Uh, the people in your life, you are a steward of their heart before the Lord and of the truth of God. Jesus saw himself as a steward of his disciples. Secondly, look at, uh, um, well, listen to the point first, and then we'll read the verse. Number two, Jesus made sure his disciples knew where his truth came from. Here's a strange word, but Jesus didn't plagiarize his father. Jesus got his truth from his father, and he made sure his disciples knew that he got his truth from his father. Verse number seven, now... They have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Now, here's how that applies to us. We must direct those who hear us to God's word. If someone comes to you for help, they don't need your philosophy. They need God's word. That's why it's so important that we know the scripture. It's so important that people know, what does the Bible say about that? Which leads us to number three, Jesus gave to his disciples what he had received from his father. You can't point them to God's word if you're not receiving anything from it yourself. Verse eight, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. That's a strange thing to come from the lips of Jesus Christ. But if it needs to be true of Jesus, how much more does it need to be true of me and of you? I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Jesus gave to his disciples what he had received from his Father. We must give to people what we receive from God's word. How am I at being a steward of God's word? I'm not, I'm not asking, am I a good preacher? I'm asking, is this a flow in my heart? Am I hearing from heaven? Am I passing it to you? Am I learning from the Lord? Am I passing it to you? And if you want to be a good steward of God's truth and of, the, of human hearts and human minds, you need to hear from God. And you need to pass it along to the people that he has surrounded you with.
I got to tell you about this. Brother Fred, is it okay if I share your your Saturday night Bible study and tell that story? I might need help on some of the details, but you okay with me telling about that? As you you know, Brother Fred has a um, a uh, military background, went to military academy, and if you had any doubt of that and you weren't here on New Year's Eve, you would have... You would not have doubted it as you saw him. Uh, everybody else is taking shot blindfold. I don't think there's anybody here that wasn't here that night. And uh, we're all, everybody else is taking uh, shots blindfolded. And brother, brother Fred comes up, gets the blindfold on, and he just starts mowing people down. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was wow. And one of them was even a running target. Was that Jose? I mean, just Jose, just like a, like a duck flying out of the, out of the high, grass, you know, and uh, he goes running across the platform, brother Ed blindfolded. <laughs> it was very impressive. Anyway, so uh, that that is his identity of his youth. I mean, my my young adult years are identified by Bible college and, and the circumstances of Bible college. His are defined by military academy and military experience. And all these years later, decades later, first of all, he has won so many of them uh, who are officers even, I believe even some generals, is that correct? Won them to the Lord. I mean, he has stayed in contact with them. And now, since sometime last summer until now, every Saturday night, 10 o'clock at night here, I don't know what time it is in the Philippines, they have a Bible study, and he teaches them the Bible. That's being a good steward of God's truth. That's being a good steward of human minds and human hearts. He has the opportunity to influence people in his life that I don't care who the preacher is. No preacher would have that opportunity. But he has chosen to be a good steward of the truth and of the people that God has placed in his life. Now, I use that as an illustration to say to all of us, are are we making that effort? Or do we minimize the influence that we have? Well, you know, I teach a class, but I only got these two kids, and they're not real bright or whatever. Shame on us. And I'm not accusing anybody of thinking like that. But I do know that that is an attitude that has existed in this world about teaching Sunday school. I just got this, you know, dumb little class. Shame on us. I'll tell you another D.L. Moody story. D.L. Moody in his day when he was pastoring in Chicago, they would send out teachers all throughout the city and they would have block Sunday school classes. Just like we, when I was in college, I had a bus route, a a huge section of, uh, well, actually a small section, but it was huge for me and my workers to cover together. And we were responsible for the souls who lived in that area. And uh, that was our bus route. And all of Chicago was divided up into bus routes. Well, in Moody's day, all of Chicago was divided into Sunday school districts. And people in his church were assigned to go to their area, their Sunday school area, get everybody they could, and teach a class. And that's, that's one of the methods that he used to reach people in Chicago. So he was preaching, and he knew his workers. He knew his teachers. He was preaching one Sunday morning, 
And he looked out and he saw a lady who was one of these block teachers. And so on the way out after church, he greeted her and she said, oh, it was so good to hear you preach this morning, Pastor. And Moody said, you're a teacher. And he named the, the district. And she said, yeah, well, today was a low day. So she said, we went to, I, you know, I went around, I knocked on the doors and I corralled everybody and we got to the meeting place and there was only three little boys. So I just, I took them back home and I decided I wanted to hear you preach. And he said, how do you know that those three little boys were not Bunyan and Spurgeon and Edwards? He said, don't ever do that again or I'll take away your, your class. That speaks to all of us, folks. We are entrusted with the hearts of human beings. And the things that we say, the things that we give to them, the truths that we give to them, will shape their lives. I know I say this once in a while, but it bears repeating that if we, if we put our heads together for a minute, we could list 25 different states in America where people are faithful to church who got saved right here. We live in an area where people do not move in like they used to in Charlotte, like they are now in Florida and Texas. They grow up here and they move out. Which means we've got a window of influence. And what we say to them in a Sunday school class or even interacting with them before church or after church or at a fellowship, at a men's breakfast, at a velvet meeting, might stay with them for the rest of their lives. We'll never know. That's one of the special things that, that social media has done for all the damage that it's caused. It has allowed people to find us. And I'm telling you, regularly, we are contacted. Uh, just within the last three weeks, uh, three different people. The first one I won't bore you with because it's about when Amy and I were bus workers in Chicago, but two others, a young girl that uh, came to church here for years with her brother, most of the time had a sour attitude. Most of the time stirred up trouble. She got a little older and she started to grow up a little bit and um, changed her attitude. And then for a little bit, she was even coming to church on Sunday night and Wednesday night some. And then just all of a sudden, she disappeared because her parents had divorced and she uh, moved to Florida with her dad. And just last week, she reached out to Amy and she said, I want you to know she said, I didn't really listen when I was there. I sat in your Sunday school class and I daydreamed. She said, but now I'm in church. I go to church every week. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. And she said, so much of what I learned in Sunday school is coming back to me. You know, she would have sat in junior church when she was a little girl. She rode the bus. Many of you, directly or indirectly, had the opportunity to influence her. And now... She lives a thousand miles away and she's going to church every Sunday. We, last Sunday, there was a post on Facebook from a young man that I, I just said this, so I'm going to go ahead and, uh, but I had the privilege of, of uh, winning him to Christ on his front porch on Chappelle Street probably 25 years ago. And 
He came to church. He was very active. I mean, we used to, he went to youth conference with us a few times. I did his wedding. We, I mean, he, he, good guy. And then when his mom died about 10 years ago, he got very bitter at the Lord and got away from the Lord. And I have hungered to know where he, where he has gone. And just last week, he showed up on Facebook and he said, you know, and he, he basically said what I just said, not about Chappelle Street, but about, about um, you know, I had a good church in Danbury, Connecticut, Northeast Baptist Church. And my mom died. I got bitter. I got away from the Lord. He said, now I live in Massachusetts and I'm so grateful. And he named somebody, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor that she invited me to church. And she's now, he said, now I'm back in church and I got right with the Lord today and I'm back. God hasn't given up on me. Just amazing folks. And we sow seeds that we're not even aware of if we're being good stewards of God's truth and his people. Let me hurry. Number four, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Look at verse nine. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. There's a special praying that Jesus did not do for the lost. He did for those who had been saved, his disciples. He prayed for them in a special way. We've been entrusted by God to pray for the people that he causes us to influence. Family members, neighbors, coworkers, people you meet in church. We ought to have a prayer list, every one of us, of people who are in our sphere. And let me throw one more thought at you. you. We all know that Jesus said, and the Bible says in other places, pray for your enemies, right? Pray for your enemies. Have you ever considered this? When someone is attacking you, when someone is lashing out at you, God has chosen you to be their prayer partner. I've had a couple stretches in my pastoring life where somebody was so vicious that I literally couldn't get them out of my head. And finally, the Lord reminded me, you're supposed to be praying for them. So why don't you let every thought of that person be a prayer reminder? And I did. And you know what? They didn't haunt me anymore. I'm telling you, it, was, it worked like it was a miracle. God said, you pray for them. And I would, and, and not, yeah, Lord, I'll pray for them. <laughs> no, not like that. Lord, help them. Please, Lord, help them work in their lives, bless their lives, bless their family. But Lord, please help them to see you work in their heart. And you know what? When I sincerely interceded for those, just a small handful of people, a couple of people, when I sincerely interceded for them, it's, they stopped haunting me. Why? Because God had been trying to get me to be their prayer partner. Bless your enemies. Lastly, Jesus was in perfect sync with his father. Now, verse number 10 is about the powerful relationship of deity. And I'm not trying to apply, us, apply that to us in any way, but simply to learn from it. Verse number 10, all mine are thine and thine are mine. Now, we can't say that to the Father, that all of his are ours. This is about Jesus' perfect relationship with God the Father. But we can learn from that. 
The goal of every spiritual influencer ought to be to be fully surrendered to God's purposes. I'm going to go back to this point. We'll be done. There is no influence session that is unimportant. 